you know, we're Calvary, we have fun. So, with all that, let's open up Genesis chapter 41. And we're going to start in verse 37, but last week as Pastor Bob ended, he read verse 36, which basically said, Joseph was interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, if you remember the story, and he told Pharaoh that his dream meant Egypt was going to have seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph advised Pharaoh, now he didn't ask for it, he just advised Pharaoh, find somebody and store up one-fifth of the food in those seven good years, and then save it for the famine that's coming. That's where we pick up tonight in verse 37. So I'll read 37 and 38. Here's what it says. The king, which is really Pharaoh, and his officials, they like this plan. They like this save the grain, one-fifth of it, so... The king said to them, who could possibly handle this idea, this program, better than Joseph, since he thought it up? But look what he says next. This is really good. After all, the Spirit of God is with him. And it's not super obvious, but and I studied this, looked into it, researched it, so trust me when I say this. This is the first time in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is mentioned as empowering anybody for anything. And a pagan Pharaoh notices Joseph has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's also a great testimony and testament, by the way, of Joseph's character, because an unbeliever that doesn't even really believe in the same God Joseph does notices the Spirit of God is with that man. There's something different about him. Which brings up, I'm going to make you take notes quick tonight. Here comes our first note if you're writing. People should be able to notice that about us. They should notice that the Holy Spirit is in us, mainly reflected in our character. And that's kind of a vague statement, so I itemize some things. And this verse, it's, it's a, I didn't copy the whole verse, but that's the verse that we call fruits of the Spirit. Our character is reflected in these characteristics. So... If people notice us as being spirit-filled, here's what they should see in me, in you, in all Christ followers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some of those are sort of, I would say, easy. You know, we can all usually, we can love each other most of the time anyway. We can have joy, but some of them are kind of hard. Patience, do we all do really good about patience all the time? Uh, so-so. What about gentleness? Kind of goes with patience. Are we always gentle? And where people, no In other words, do people notice how gentle you and I are? That's a little harder. Self-control. What if somebody cuts you off on 95 or Wickham, you know, even leaving here? Do you have that self-control to pray for their driving skills and not yell out the window at them? Those are signs of our character, practical things. So when people notice our character, do a mental list. Okay, am I doing these things? God is watching. Holy Spirit, help me behave. That's what we need to do is pray because it's hard. Back to our story, verse 39. The king told Joseph, look what he says. God is the one who has shown you these things. In other words, he showed you my dream. No one else, and he means no one else in all of Egypt, is as wise as you are or knows as much as you do. 
This is a prisoner he's talking to, and he's already elevated him way above all his wise men. So Joseph, in my mind anyway, is likely shocked by this statement. Because remember, he didn't ask for this. He just came up, and he didn't really come up with it. God gave him that interpretation. He just recited what God put on his heart. But he's going to be in charge, and we'll see that in the next verse. Look what it says in verse 40. Pharaoh is going to speak again. I'm putting you in charge of my palace. Then everybody in the whole nation will have to obey you. No one will be over you except me. You are now governor of all of Egypt. Wow, that's, that's a big wow. Because he's a prisoner when he even is being spoken to still. So literally he's gone, and I could have used this as our title, by the way, from, from prison to the palace. From prison to the palace. And I thought about it. But our title instead tonight is Successful Suffering. We're going to study how Joseph successfully suffered because he went through a lot. But we already talked about his character. His faith never wavers. His character never changed. He never gets angry at God and says, you know, why me? Because if you remember the story, he's in jail under false pretenses. He didn't do anything. Potiphar's wife made all that up. Prison to the palace, and here he is now second in command to Pharaoh himself. And don't forget, in Egypt, Pharaoh would be what we would call a little G God. You know, they thought he was God in the flesh almost. So he's second in the country to him. But it did take 13 long years. He's been in prison 13 years. Um, not all those 13, but that's how long he's been out of, you know, the pit and back in the promised land. Let me ask you this, though. Here's a good question. Did Joseph try on his own to orchestrate or arrange any of his circumstances? In other words, did he go campaigning for this role? Did he try to maneuver as he was in Potiphar's house and, you know, work the system, do some backdoor politic bargaining? No. He just trusted God, kept his faith, and let God open doors for him, which now God, God has put Joseph exactly where he wanted him, and it's exactly where he's supposed to be. He just trusted God. God can elevate us. God can bring us down, which is a great verse in Psalms. Let's look at it on screen. Here's what it says. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. We can't exalt ourselves is how we should see this verse. It is God who judges all of us. He brings one down. He exalts another. Joseph is living proof of that very statement. He's the one that elevated Joseph because it's all part of God's master plan. And he's doing two or three things at once. It's not just so Joseph would interpret that dream and kind of fix the famine. There's way more at work here because we know he's also in place. You know, we know the story. I'm not going to give you anything you don't already know. He's going to reunify the family through his position too. So let's keep reading. Verse 42. Then the king took off his royal ring and put it on Joseph's finger. He gave him fine clothes to wear, so he's gone from prison rags to elaborate robes, probably way better than that coat of many colors that we kind of laughed about, because really it just means a real fine robe. And look what else he does. He places a gold chain around his neck. Now, we don't know, but in prison, you know, a lot of prisoners have shackles or even a collar. Now he's got super expensive gold jewelry on. So 
He's had an elevation in his status, wouldn't you say? Then look what 43 says. He also let him ride in the chariot next to his own. He's probably never been in a chariot in his life. You know, he was a shepherd and kind of a mama's boy we talked about. He didn't hardly leave the house. He didn't do much, didn't work in the fields. Now he's in a chariot and probably, you know, in the lap of luxury, to be honest. And then look what the people start shouting. Make way for Joseph. Make way for Joseph. Because he's governor, as Scripture says, over all of Egypt. Now, this signet ring that Pharaoh gave him, this would be like, you know, you've seen the old movies. They put a wax seal. They, that's their authority. Um, so as he's wearing this ring, he has all of Pharaoh's power unless Pharaoh is in the room with him. He's really acting as Pharaoh's, you know, substitute for all intents and purposes. And in a way, he is Pharaoh unless Pharaoh walked in. What a status change. Look how good God blessed Joseph from the pit to the palace. Verse 44, the king, which is Pharaoh, told Joseph, although I'm king, no one in Egypt is to do anything, not just this grain or this famine, no one is to do anything without your permission. So now he's got all. He, is, he is, literally is, if you think about it, that means he is Pharaoh unless Pharaoh enters the room. In a lot of ways, um, we've made the case in prior weeks, you know, that Joseph is, is similar to. He is not Jesus. You know, we studied Genesis. God showed up in the flesh, and I make the case a lot of those nights that it would be Jesus if it's God in the flesh. It can't be God. You can't see God's face. The Holy Spirit has no body, so if it's a physical form, it's Jesus. Joseph is not Jesus, but he's very similar in a lot of ways to Jesus. He's like a, almost a foreshadow in literature, a hint of what's to come. Let me read a couple of verses. Um, we'll look at them on the screen out of Colossians. And we covered these not long ago on the weekend, but this is a great reminder. Here's what it says. I think it's what it says. One, two, three, Colossians. There we go. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And think of authority, Joseph's authority versus Christ's authority as we read these. He existed before anything. There we go. That was slide two. Uh, they're fixing my mistake as I started reading the wrong part. Christ, actually go back to the other one. Flip it one more time. There we go. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He is the ultimate authority, but in this moment, Joseph is sort of acting as the ultimate authority except Pharaoh. Once again, he's not Jesus. He's just similar to, it's a hint if the Jews were paying attention as they knew these scriptures, read these scriptures that prophesied the Messiah, they might have connected the dots. But, you know, we have the hindsight. We have 2020 vision because we have the whole Bible. Those verses were out of the New Testament, which they didn't have. But he is the image, the visible image of the invisible God, as those first verses I read said. He's supreme over all creation. He has all authority. And if we were to read other verses, you know, some people will tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. 
Well, he didn't use those exact words because he didn't speak English. He was speaking Aramaic and Hebrew. But he did say, remember when the Pharisees were questioning him? He said, before Abraham was, I am. And what he was really saying is, I am God and I have all authority. We'll do a few more comparisons as we go through our text. Look at the next verse, 45. Um, Pharaoh, he, he gave Joseph the Egyptian name Zephanath Pania. And that, by the way, that's an unknown meaning. We like to always give you the Hebrew words when the, the kids have a name. Nobody knows what this one is. I guess it got lost in antiquity. Even Egyptians don't know. But he let him marry him, Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphira, a priest in the city of Heliopolis. And then Joseph traveled all over Egypt. So he was considered royalty. He's marrying women of high standing, the priest's daughter. He's been given an Egyptian name. Now, over time, there's been many theories, and I won't spend much time because it doesn't really matter, about what that name would mean. And, and we don't really know, but most people believe it's one of two things. And it's both related to those dream interpretations. It either means God speaks or the revealer of secrets. And they're kind of, in a way, the same thing, except one's more godly, God speaks. It's something about that dream that got him this name, that dream interpretation. But here's what is important. This is the only time in all our Bible, in Scripture, that you see this name used or mentioned. It was a one-time thing, which really should tell us something. The name didn't stick. In other words, he didn't own it. He never used it. It was given by Pharaoh and... I can just almost imagine Joseph saying, that's not my name. I'm Joseph. He never forgot his roots. He was rooted in Christ, as we'll talk about this weekend. And here's the key, really. Pharaoh was trying to change Joseph's name so he would be assimilated into Egyptian culture. But really, it didn't work because the main reason, he couldn't change Joseph's character. He really couldn't change his faith his faith in the one true God. His faith, even in the most daunting of his trials, never wavered. He never gave up on God, which is the second thing to write down if you're taking notes. And this one's really important, I think. We all have outside influences if we think about it. We keep those outside influences on the outside where they belong by remaining strong on the inside by remaining rooted in Christ, as Scripture says. Joseph is a great example of that. Pharaoh tried to change his status, give him all these riches, chariots, gold chains, nice robes, change his name. So he could have, if he wanted to, think about it. As I was studying this, I thought about this. He could have lived that life of luxury and never looked back and sort of been an Egyptian. And he would have been second in charge he may have even, remember the story of Moses? He may have even been elevated into Pharaoh someday. Who knows? He never wavered because of his strong faith and his strong character. So it's a great reminder for us, forget about the outside influences, be strong on the inside, and be rooted in Christ. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when the king made him governor, and he went everywhere for the king, all over the region, all over the country because Egypt had a lot of territory at this moment. Well, we know from other verses, past chapters, that Joseph was sold into slavery at the age of 17. Now he's 30. We just read that in that verse. 
So those are the 13 years I referenced earlier. He's had 13 years to get ready from that pit to be in the palace. To see how God got him ready, we have to go back and look at a couple of verses out of chapter 39. Here's what they say. Let's read them together. I better be still because it's on the side. Note to self, don't move around when it's on the side. So the warden put Joseph in charge. This is when he's first arrested. This is when Potiphar had him in the house and his wife accused him. Pretty much right away, the warden of that initial prison put him in charge of all those that were being held in the entire prison. And he would look what it says behind that. He was responsible for everything that happened, all that was done there. And even it was, he did such a great job, the next part of that verse says, the warden paid no attention to anything under his control because he trusted, really because he trusted Joseph, because he knew, that's the real key though, the Lord was with Joseph. He saw it just like Pharaoh did and gave him success. So they're all recognizing that his success is coming from God. And literally whatever he did, including being locked up in prison, that was his training. Remember a few weeks ago, I think it was Pastor Dave that talked about our trials or our training. That we don't usually see it that way, but God has us in a trial a lot of times as a training ground. He's going to do something with that training later and use it for his glory, and Joseph is a great example of that. Next verse, 47. Here comes his prophecy and the dream interpretation coming true. For seven years, these are the years of plenty, there were big harvests of grain. Joseph collected and stored up the extra grain in the cities of Egypt near the fields where it was harvested. So all the fields had storehouses. He's putting one-fifth of it away. Because remember, he interpreted the dream. He told Pharaoh, here's what you need to do. Store one-fifth of everything. Now, it's not in Scripture, but um, like more like his historians, history books will tell us that Pharaoh always demanded a 10% tax on like the grain or the food that they brought. So what Joseph's plan was really, he took the, tw- the 10 and doubled it to 20. Because 20%, if you're bad at math like me, that's one-fifth. So one-fifth of the grain got stored, and he just doubled what they were used to giving in a way. But that's not the whole picture. If we read the next verse, which I will, verse 49, look what it says. In fact, there was so much grain that they stopped keeping record. In other words, there's so much, we don't even need to count it. It's just so much. Because it was like counting the grains of sand along the Florida beach. That's a lot of grain, isn't it? Who did that part? Joseph might have stored it. God says, I gave you that interpretation. You're doing what I said. I'm well pleased. This is not in there, by the way, but you can read between the lines and see it plain as day. God is who brought this abundant harvest because he's doing something. He's not just going to feed Egypt. He's going to feed the world or the known world of that time because it's going to be a worldwide famine. We'll talk about that later tonight. But as we read this, you know, sometimes people will wonder, well, why is God blessing this pagan nation? We know Pharaoh and Egypt behaved terribly in the Moses story. Why is he blessing them? Let's look at a verse out of Isaiah. It's a great reminder of of why God does things sometimes we don't understand. Here's what it says. We know this verse. It might even be on your refrigerator. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts 
are higher than our little puny human mind's thoughts. God is doing something bigger than what they visually see on the surface. He's not blessing a pagan nation. He kind of is, but it, it's really a plan to bless Israel. They're all going to come get food. The nation, Abraham's family, Jacob and all those guys, all the sons, they show up in a chapter or so later. But also he's going to feed many, many more people. As I would put it, almost the whole known world will come to Egypt and get grain because nobody has any. But he's also up to other things. It's not just the feeding plan that God is up to. He's going to use, as we know, because we know the story, this whole event to reunify Joseph with the brothers that sold him into slavery. Not just reunify him. They're going to let bygones be bygones after Joseph kind of messes with them a little bit. You know, hides their money, hides silver cups, does some stuff. But it's really about reunifying the brother, and the father will finally get to see the son that he thinks is dead. That's what God is doing. So back to our story, verse 50. Joseph and his wife, and that would be the pagan Egyptian wife, by the way, had two sons before the famine began. Their first son was named Manasseh, which means God has let me forget all my troubles. This is Joseph's name because you can see how he's describing it. God has let me forget all my troubles and my family. So apparently he's not even thinking about his brothers at this moment. Even he doesn't know what's coming because he names his son Forget, in a way. I'm shortening it because that's a long sentence. My son's name is Forget because I forgot everything about my pit and my past. He forgot his troubles, his trials, but he never forgot his faith, did he? No. And that's a great kind of a take-home point for us. Even in our trials, even when we're in that pit, don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Joseph, in his pit, was praising the Lord. He didn't let his difficulties discourage him the whole time he was in prison, even under false circumstances. God will bless us if we don't lose hope, lose faith, just stay the course and let him work all these details out. There's a great verse in Job that kind of reminds us of that, by the way. Job 17, 9. Look what it says. The righteous keep moving forward. They don't get stuck. They don't go backwards. So if we're righteous, we should keep moving forward. And those with clean hands that aren't angry at God and, and mad because he's punishing us become stronger and stronger. And I would add, even in our trials. That's what we're called to do. Keep moving forward. Let God work it out, clear the path for us. Keep our hands clean by not getting angry and sinful and, and blaming everybody but us. And then he'll, he'll help us through the Holy Spirit become stronger and stronger. And here's something I thought about as I studied a couple of these verses. You know, sometimes we can even move forward by just staying the course, by just riding the storm out. So I thought of an illustration. You have to bear with me a second, but... We're all Floridians now, no matter where you're born. If you're in this room, you're kind of a Floridian by default. So we all know what a riptide is, right? Nobody likes them either, especially at beach baptisms. But here, here's the idea I want us to think about. Think about beating a riptide. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to fight it and try to get back to shore? No. 
you have to kind of go with the flow, literally, because it is going to maybe pull you out. And at some point, it'll dump you past where the waves are breaking. Then you can go parallel and come back in. If you try to fight against the current and just fight, 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 we'll exhaust ourselves, and we might even drown. That's how people drown. They don't know about riptides. It may be your tourists from other places. In a similar way, that's our trial. You know, sometimes we try to fight our trial too hard. We want it to end. We don't like it. We want to get out of it, don't we? We all do that. But we can literally exhaust ourselves fighting the trial when God is saying, whoa, 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 I will get you out. Just go with the flow. At the proper moment, I'll show you the path. Don't exhaust yourself because obviously if we're still in a trial, God is allowing it to be that way. He doesn't want it to end because he's trying to, as Pastor Dave say, train us for something. It's a training ground. And if I try to fight and end it, Maybe God is not ending it yet, and it's just going to harm me by fighting like that riptide would. Does that make sense? So wait on God's timing, not our. Remember, we have little small human brains. Our ideas, mine included, aren't very smart sometimes. Let God work out the trial and just keep the faith, keep our strong character, keep our hands clean, as that verse said. Trust God even in the pit. Back to the story, 52. He has another son. Verse 52 said his second son was named Ephraim, which means God has made me a success in the land where I suffered. Here's where the title came from, successful suffering. Joseph is saying God made me a success because by all worldly definitions, remember chariot, gold chains, elaborate robes, Second in command of Pharaoh, God has made me, he gave God the credit, don't miss that one either, has made me a success in the same land where I suffered by being falsely imprisoned, is what he means. Now, many of your translations may translate, instead of that long sentence I just read, a lot of translations just keep his name short, fruitful. Ephraim means fruitful. God has made Joseph very fruitful and blessed him. He isn't just really fruitful. I would make the case God blessed his socks off to be second in charge. You know, he's, he's a foreigner. He's a Hebrew, an Israelite. He's second in command in the whole region, not just Egypt. The, the land barriers, Egypt controlled a lot of area, and he's second in command over all of that. Think about what he would have been back in the promised land. Remember? Mama's boy, dad's him to the field. At best, he would have grown up probably to be a shepherd. Now he's almost like Pharaoh. That's overly blessed. It could be dangerous if he wasn't so faithful. Because blessings of wealth and stuff are dangerous, aren't they? We have to be careful with those. We have to be more like Joseph and don't let it waver our strong faith and what's on our inside, which is Jesus. But notice those two names. I'm not going to reread them, but notice where they came from. Those are Hebrew names. Remember, I, I, I made the case a few verses ago that Pharaoh tried to Egyptianize Joseph, gave him that weird name, nobody knows what it means. This is more proof that Egyptian kind of conversion didn't work. Otherwise, he would have likely named his kids Egyptian names. He gave them Hebrew names because he's staying clean hand, pure, pure to the God he loves and knows and worships. 
Verse 53 says, Egypt's seven years of plenty came to an end. So now the, the good years are ending. Then in verse 54 it says, the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph said it would. Then look what it says after that. This is why I said while I go, he blessed not just Egypt, many. There was not enough food in other countries, but all over Egypt there was plenty. So now other countries are starving. The famines spread worldwide, essentially, to the known world as they knew it. Egypt has plenty. But the thing we want to focus on, everything Joseph said came true. It happened. Deuteronomy has a great verse, like the test of a prophet, because Joseph did give like a prophecy as he interpreted that dream. And looks like in Scripture it all came true, doesn't it? Look what, look what that verse on the screen says. If a prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know the Lord did not give that message. And if you were here a few weeks ago, remember Pastor Dave told a funny story, I think it was on the weekend, where he said a guy came up to him at his old church up in Iowa and said, God told me you were going to give $1,000 to the church tonight. And Dave said, God didn't tell me that. <laughs> it was pretty funny. That was a made-up prophecy, I would call it. But it happens a lot in modern times. There's all these TV guys that say, you know, do this, do that. They'll speak some word of faith or truth over you, supposedly. And if you only will mail me $20, I'll send you this little square-inch prayer cloth, and you'll probably get blessed by it. Look what this verse continues. The prophets that speak without my authority aren't to be feared. And I would even add, or listen to. We don't need to listen to false prophets when we got God's word right in our hands. And be careful when people come up with a bunch of wild tales and you're like, like Dave said, God didn't say that to me. Because if, if God had put that on our hearts, he would speak to us before a complete stranger. Normally. Now, I'm not saying it could never happen, but because there is times when God will give a word to a stranger and then literally it will come true. Like, um, you know, people have spoken over pastors before that you're going to be a pastor someday, and they're like, I was like a school teacher at the time, and that made no sense to me, but later on, they sure enough were a pastor. So that prophecy, by this definition, was a God prophecy because it eventually came true. If it doesn't come true, it's a bunch of nonsense. Don't listen to it, especially on the TV screen. Back to the text, verse 55. When the famine finally struck Egypt, so it spread through the world, now it's back almost to Egypt, the people asked the king or Pharaoh for food. Now the people are affected in the country. Look what he says. Go to Joseph, do whatever he tells you to do. Pharaoh is in charge, not Joseph, really. But he doesn't seem, at least in my mind, to have a real answer. He doesn't even know what to do except go ask Joseph. And don't forget, I already mentioned it once, in Egyptians' eyes, he was a god, a little g-god in my mind, but he still, they called him a god. Their false god doesn't have a clue what to do, does he? Who does? The one guy, the one man that God himself put in charge, Joseph. Joseph knows exactly what to do. We'll see that in the next verse. Verse 56 says, the famine became bad everywhere. The whole country now is affected in Egypt. So Joseph, at this point, opens up the storehouses where all that grain is, sold the grain to the Egyptians. People from all over the world started coming, came to Egypt to buy the grain because the famine was so severe in their own countries. 
It's literally a worldwide famine. So God is not just blessing the pagan nation of Egypt. He's blessing everyone. And don't you think all of them would know the Joseph story? They would have been, you know, there, there was no TV. There was no radio. We all know that. There's not really even written word except papyrus. What would they all probably talk about? That's Joseph. That's the guy that had came up with this plan. Because of Joseph, our country has food. How did he do that? I don't know. The Pharaoh said God was in him. His God, not Pharaoh's God. The Hebrew God did this. God was drawing attention, I believe anyway, to himself. Not just feeding the physical needs. He was trying his best to give an opportunity to feed them spiritually. Now, of course, most of them likely didn't take it, but God still put it out there. The God of Joseph did this. That's Joseph's own words, and Pharaoh's too. Another similarity, though, if you think about it. In a way, Joseph is blessing the, the known world through his, his actions. What did Jesus do? He's not Jesus, just similar to. Didn't Jesus bless our known world through his actions? His death on the cross was a blessing, don't you think? They, they, they're similar, a lot of similarities, and I think God is really just hinting, hinting, hinting to the Old Testament people. Watch this Joseph guy. He's an he's a early picture of my son that's coming to save everybody, a worldwide blessing. But just so we're clear, he's not Jesus, not even really a type of Jesus. He's similar to, there's a lot of, I could give a lot more than I'm giving. He's very similar to Jesus for a reason, to make us want to know more about Jesus as we read this. Next chapter, 42, we're going to do a few verses out of 42 before we stop. Because it's still part of the same story. Remember I've told us before, God didn't divide the Bible into chapter verse. Men did. And in my mind, sometimes they probably should have put a few more verses with the story like this one until we get finished with it. Chapter 42, verse 1. Here's what it says. When Jacob, their dad, found out there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you just sitting around here staring at each other? Because they don't know what to do. But there's probably more to it than that. And some of the translations, he kind of asked his sons, why do you keep on and keep on staring at each other? I believe, anyway, in my opinion, they're probably feeling guilty. I mean, they know the answer is in Egypt. What else do they know is in Egypt? The brother they sold out of the pit, where'd he go? That's in the back of their mind. They're probably thinking, we can't go down there. What if we somehow bump into him? Well, they're going to bump into him, right? We know the story. But I think they have a guilty conscience. So they're just sitting around moping, looking at each other. What do we do? What do we do? At some point, Jacob's going to have enough of that and sort of send them to go to Egypt. They're kind of, in my mind anyway, convicted of their sin. But are they convicted enough to do anything about it, to confess to their poor dad that, you know what, dad, we got to fess up. Your favorite son is not dead. We put a bunch of animal blood on that robe and tricked you. What we really did was sold him into slavery. Apparently, they're not guilty enough to do that because they're just going to look at each other and wonder what to do. Because there's a big difference, by the way, in being sorry for what we did. That's repentance versus I'm sorry that it might get found out. 
I'm really hoping it doesn't come out and mess up my life. That's more what I think they're thinking, which is also a great verse out of 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look what it says. Godly sorrow, repentance. It brings repentance. They're connected. A godly sorrow. We're not just sorry for what we did. We're sorry for what it did to other people, how it affected people. That kind of godly sorrow leads to our salvation. And then we're not going to have regret. See, it leaves no regret when we have that kind. Worldly sorrow, like these brothers likely have, they're just sorry it's going to all come out at some point. They're getting nervous. That kind of sorrow leads to death because it's not packaged with salvation. If we're just worried about getting caught, we're like a two-year-old kid that stole some candy or got in the refrigerator at midnight He's not really sorry for what he did. He's sorry he got caught. Hadn't your kids done stuff like that? We all did that, didn't we? I know I did. There's a difference in godly sorrow. It, that, as that verse says, it leads us to repentance. We're sorry we hurt God is what it really amounts to, and we want to do better. That's the kind of repentance God is looking for. Verse 2, we're almost done. I have heard, this is Jacob speaking, He's watched these brothers stare at each other and look at the walls and avoid his eye contact, most likely. I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some so we won't all starve to death. This is part two of God's master plan. This is part of the reunification. Remember, he's not just feeding the world. He's going to reunify this family. Then he's going to give them the real repentance at some point. It's going to take a couple of more chapters, but we'll get there. The reunification starts almost with Jacob saying these words, go get some grain. They don't know reunification is coming, but God does. That's part of what he's doing here. You know, sometimes we, we see God in such a narrow focus, don't we? We see exactly what's in front of our dumb minds. We see one little thing, and we think we know what God's sort of doing. We miss the giant big picture he's doing all around us. We all do. Joseph, in our story, just trusts God, doesn't know what's happening, but he never wavers. We already talked about his character, his faith, another way he's kind of similar to Jesus. Even in the tough times, he doesn't falter. Verse 3, 10 of Joseph's brothers, so most of them, all but one, went to Egypt to buy grain. Then it tells us why in verse 4. But Jacob, the father, did not send Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, with them. And then it tells us why. He was afraid something might happen. In other words, something like what he thinks happened to Joseph. Because in his mind, Joseph's dead. Why won't he let Benjamin go? Most likely because he's still to this point, all these years later, which is 13 we read earlier, Thirteen years later, he's still not over the grief of losing his son. So he, he won't let his other favorite, which is the only two sons, by the way, of his favorite wife. These are the two biological sons of Rachel. Remember the Rachel story? We had a favorite. He thinks he lost Rachel's first son. He says, I am not losing Rachel's son number two. And he's going to protect him at all costs. But he's grieving Maybe some of you, or maybe if it's not you, maybe you have a loved one that's grieving over a lost loved one. If you don't know already, we have a great class here at our church called Grief Share. 
Grief can be really tough in the holidays. They have programs even they call Grief Share through the holidays. But it's a class that will start up before too much longer, maybe in the spring because of the holidays. But I know it's going to start again soon. It helps you go through grief. If you're grieving, no matter how many years ago it was, maybe you need healing. Sign up for Grief Share. A lot of people even go through it twice or even more. They'll cycle through because it's so helpful. They'll tell us, I got to do it again, that I'm still sad. And it can be once again years ago. So if, you, if it's you, go. If you have a loved one, tell them about it. Send them. We have a class that meets on Tuesday in the daytime. But First Baptist has a night class. We kind of cross-reference to each other's programs. We just want people to be healed. And they use this, God's Word, to heal you. Don't miss out. I'll get off my soapbox now. But it, it, it's really a valuable program. I can't hardly say enough about it. Last verse, verse 5. So Jacob's sons, they finally get moving, much to their chagrin. They probably don't want to go because they're scared of Egypt because they think Jacob, I mean, Joseph could be down there. Verse 5 says, they join others from Canaan, all the people that are hungry and starving from this famine, who were going to Egypt because of the terrible famine. It's confirmation that God is feeding many nations, many people, and he's using Joseph, his faithful servant, as literally his hands and feet to feed the world. Think how far Joseph's come in this story. Once again, from the pit to the palace, and God is blessing him and using him, not for his own wealth or his own glory, to bless the world, really, similar to Jesus. Last thing to take notes, and we're going to end on this statement. This is our last main point. We all have trials, don't we? But here's something to think about. If we're in a trial, like Joseph was, if we're only focused on that pit or our circumstances, we may not understand it. We may not see what God is doing, but we don't need to. We just need to trust him. Because if we're so focused on the pit, we might miss out on the palace God has waiting. By getting angry, upset, getting mad at God, walking away from our faith even. You know, we know people that have done that. I do. I'm sure you do too. Let's all be more like Joseph. But you know what? We need God's help. So we're going to pray for that as we close, for the Holy Spirit to help us to get past our pit and imagine it's a palace someday coming. But maybe you can't do that because you don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I don't care if you're in this room, if you're watching online, there's a number you could call. If you're in the commons, come in here. I'd love to talk to you, pray with you. Don't leave tonight without making the commitment to follow Jesus. Or you're going to stay in that pit. He, he, he helps his servants out, but he wants us to serve and follow him first, to put him first as Lord and Savior. But for the rest of us that do believe, because you're the Wednesday night crowd, most of you I'm sure are saved, let's just pray that God helps us when we get in that pit again. Because, you know, pits, pits happen. Christ, a Christ follower's life is not easy. You know, Dave talked about that this weekend again. God never promised easy. He just promised to help us through it. But we need his strength to do that, and we're going to pray. Lord, tonight, we love you. Um, Father, I'm sure many in this room, even right now, are in a trial of one sort or another. Lord, I just pray you would give me and all of them the strength to let um, you just take control.
to get us out of that pit in your perfect timing. And Lord, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would help us all not to lose our faith, to keep that strong character, that people would see all those fruits of the Spirit in us, like patience, peace, and self-control, even during our trials. But Lord, once again, we need your Holy Spirit to help us. So empower us, Lord, to make you look good here on this earth. To you be all the praise and all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen.